This is the Soulpreneur Lifestyle Podcast, your go-to place for creative ideas on how to run your business in a way that lights you up and gives you purpose, all in a way that still allows you to live the lifestyle that you want to live. And I'm your host, Simran Bhatia. And this episode is brought to you by the Flowation.com directory of spiritual-minded healers and professionals. Imagine a resource where you can search for like-minded professionals to help you with everyday life issues, as well as to help guide you along your spiritual journey. We're launching soon, so soulpreneurs of every profession come join the waitlist to learn how you can promote your business, products, or services on the Floation directory at floation.com backslash directory waitlist. That is F-L-O-W-A-T-I-O-N.com backslash directory waitlist. A universe of opportunities awaits you. Today's interview is with Julia McGarry of Partnered Path Parenting. She's a parent coach for parents of highly sensitive children. And being someone who grew up as a highly sensitive child, super empathic, this was a really helpful interview for me to just sit and process my own childhood. But also I have a little bit of a suspicion my son is as well highly sensitive. And what I loved was the discussion we had around the tools that you can use to help empower your child to understand that they process the world a little differently and how to go about doing that, as well as the discussion that we had around the school system and discussing, you know, your child's situation with their teachers so that they can feel like they're in a safe environment even when they're at school. So I really hope that this interview is just as helpful for all of you as it was for me and that you're able to take some tidbits away from it about, you know, what it's like to be a highly sensitive person and the fact that it's okay that, you know, you might process the world a little. So today I have with me Julia McGarry, who is a parent coach. She deals a lot with highly sensitive children and the parents of highly sensitive children. And so I find this topic really interesting because I think I've mentioned in the past, I think my son is possibly a highly sensitive child. I know I've been labeled as someone who's highly sensitive, and I do feel like the needs, the emotional needs of virtually are very excited to talk with you today, Julia, about just, you know, the spectrum of things that happen when you are dealing with parenting a child like this, especially if you're an entrepreneur who's already just kind of got business on the mind 24-7 as well. tandem with your parenting on the mind 24-7 as well. Thank you for coming in today. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here and excited to dive into what it looks like as an entrepreneur and a parent of a highly sensitive child because I'm certainly navigating that myself right now. So... So can you share a little bit with us about your journey of becoming a parent coach and then how did you choose to focus more on highly sensitive children? Absolutely. I started out as in, in education and I was teaching sixth grade reading 
in Houston and I made a transition, a deliberate choice to start teaching yoga. I was leaving my teaching job in Houston, moving to a new city, and I started teaching yoga. And my path there took me to children's yoga and prenatal yoga. And as I started working with those two populations, I realized I really wanted to support parents more um, beyond that section of time, like leading up to their birth, right? So prenatal yoga is an interesting uh, variation of yoga in terms of student retention and that sort of thing, because you really get to know people well when you're teaching and then they move on as soon as their baby's born. So it's hard to maintain that relationship. So I wanted to find a way to continue that relationship and support those moms that I was working with, but also be able to support dads too in raising their kids in a way that was really supportive and supported them building the tools to regulate their emotions and function at a higher level in society. So at that point, well, after my own daughter was born, I decided to go back to school and I got a master's in human education and development through the University of Colorado at Denver and the Boulder Journey School. And while I was doing that program, there was a child in my class, I was teaching preschool, there was a three-year-old in my class who had these really big emotions on an almost daily basis. And the time that it was at its worst was leading up to a move. Her family was moving to a new house just down the street, but it, the two weeks leading up to the move were really intense. And if another child came into the classroom and had a hard drop off, let's say, they missed their mom, she would miss her mom the rest of the day and she would be in the middle of the floor crying at the top of her lungs, wanting her mom for the whole day. And it took me a while to figure out what was going on for her. I, there, I knew there was a sensory component because one day she, I couldn't figure out what was going on for her. And then I realized she was wearing a sweater and that she was hot. And I asked her to take her sweater off and then everything settled down for her. So I knew there was something going on with her sensory processing and her nervous system. But when I looked at the checklist for sensory processing disorder, it didn't quite fit. And so I kept thinking about it and I, I had been exposed to the concept of highly sensitive people. I hadn't really looked into it that much and I didn't really identify myself as a highly sensitive person because I don't really have those um, sensitivities to textures and clothing and that was that was the messaging that I was receiving at the time. So I wasn't too sure about what it really meant and I looked into how it presented in children and there's a checklist and I went through for this child and she checked off every box. I could check off every box on the list. And I just, at that point, I realized her parents had no idea that this was going on for her and her teachers certainly didn't understand. Um, there were other teachers in the community who would talk about how, how manipulative she was and they would try to bribe her to stop crying by offering her brownies. And um, it, it was, I felt like she was very misunderstood and that her parents needed some support in being able to advocate for her as she went through school so that she didn't 
end up hating school and struggling because her teachers didn't get her and the adults in her life didn't get her. So that's what led me to parents of highly sensitive children. That's an incredible story because if you think about it, the, you know, bribing her with brownies and everything that you described is probably your stereotypical reaction coming from most parents, most teachers. They're just like, what can I do to make this behavior stop? But they're never looking at the root and then just trying to wish it away very, very quickly. Um, but it was really interesting what you said around the checklist. So for our listeners who are, you know, not necessarily, who similarly to you, like they're not totally aware of what it means for their chi highly sensitive, can you share um, as much of, as you remember of that checklist? Like what, what are the marks that they should be looking for? Absolutely, and I can give you um, a link to that checklist but it varies a little bit for the age of the child. So when I'm talking about highly sensitive children to somebody who isn't quite sure if their child is or isn't, we usually start at infancy because many highly sensitive children start showing signs when they're babies, when they're born. So if your child was born really alert and just taking in everything, if they were an old soul from very early on, or maybe they startled easily or were a little bit fussier than other babies, those are all signs, very early signs of a highly sensitive child. And then as they enter into toddlerhood, you may see them being wary of strangers, reluctant to jump into new activities. They might get labeled as shy or be easily startled by loud sounds and noises, or they could even be distractible, intense, uh, empathic. And they might have really surprising vocabularies because the core trait of a highly sensitive child is that their nervous system is more finely tuned and they're taking in everything. They're observers and they're sorting everything they're, that's going on around them into lots of different categories in their mind. So that's just a start. <laughs> I, I remember, yeah, I remember you mentioning that when we first talked about it. And I tried again, yet again, not to laugh when you said vocabulary, because that's what I am experiencing, right? I mean, the way he categorizes things just blows my mind because it's a it's very similar to how I do it, but you know, I'm 35 and he's three. So there's like a little gap there in my head of like, what's going on? But, um, you know, it's really just the vocabulary and the, the observation is, it's a step beyond what you see with other kids at that age, along with all the other things that you mentioned. So that kind of can help a parent tune in to what their child might be experiencing. Um, now, so let's kind of take a step back. Like, let's say somebody is, you're not just going to work and then coming home and, you know, disattaching yourself for the rest of the day from the outcome of what you did. 
not that going to work is not important, but, you know, something with entrepreneurial nature makes you a little bit of just, you know, what's going on constantly. You're thinking you're still, no matter having a support team, a lot of times you're still the, you know, the end game of making decisions all the time. And that's a place where you can be really easily distractible. I think it becomes even harder to get just as intensely um, observational about another topic equally. So sometimes I see them like, while they're trying to be very, very good parents, there's certain small things that can be slipping on the parenting side. And there's the subtle things that would come up with a highly sensitive child that maybe they're not noticing until it hits them in the face. Suggest that someone tune into so that they pick it up ahead of time because then they are catering things to their kid who's highly sensitive instead of waiting for years until again, it's like that little girl that you were talking about where the issue's been going on for a while. Yeah. So I'd say one of the biggest things to look for is uh, if your child seems to get upset out of nowhere, if they seem to be like doing fine or they do great at preschool, but then they come home and they're, they're really upset about things that, that seem like they don't matter, they're probably if they are highly sensitive, they're probably overstimulated. And this is, this is the biggest challenge, I think, with highly sensitive kids is they're taking in so much input that it's almost like you have, like they're a pot full of water that's about to boil. And there's that point where one more thing is just gonna set them to boiling over. Um, so it could be something as simple as dropping a piece of food on the floor that they wanted to eat but it and then it triggers this big emotional meltdown and it can be really confusing and then on a slightly different note as an entrepreneur i know for myself i tend to get really preoccupied with my business and if i'm experiencing any amount of stress around my business i find it's really important to either find a good way to manage that stress or be pretty open with my child about what's, what I'm experiencing, not necessarily the details of what's causing it, but she picks up on what I'm experiencing even when I think I'm hiding it. And the child that I talked about a moment ago that was in my class, she could, if her teachers were stressed out, she knew it, even if they weren't talking about it or showing it outwardly. If they were upset, she knew it, and she would take on that emotion. It was kind of incredible. So if you, if you notice your child is upset when you are or they seem like they're reading your mind, that's another clue that they might be highly sensitive and they might be picking up on more than you realize. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That brings up quite a number of questions for me. So I'm going to break it okay. down a little bit. Um, first, I, obviously, you're talking about kids who are really empathic, you know, and that was my experience as a child. I'd walk into a room and, like, suddenly I was feeling everybody's garbage. Like, they're happy, they're sad, they're everything. I would take it on. 
I didn't know what to do with that information at all. You know, it was very overwhelming, very burdensome until I was able to learn to just protect my energy a lot. So first question there would be like, how do you teach your child that? So what I feel I learned the really hard way. (laughs) So what I've been working with my daughter on, and this is something that I used to do in my yoga classes for kids. So during Shavasana, I would give every child a bubble. And my mom, this actually dates back to my childhood. My mom would do this for me at bedtime when she tucked me in, she'd give me a bubble and I got to choose what color bubble I wanted. And so, and I took it into yoga. I'd give the kids a bubble from their head to their feet. They could touch the top of their head all the way to their feet. They get to choose what color it is. And any, they get to choose what comes into their bubble. So anything they love and care about and want to have in close to them, they bring in their bubble. Anything that's bothering them, they can leave outside of their bubble. And so I've adapted that to my daughter, just functioning in the world. If there's something upsetting going on around her, we've talked about it enough that I can say, do you want to put your bubble on so that what they're experiencing doesn't bother you as much and she'll do it. She says, oh yeah, I'm carrying it in my mouth and she'll take her bubble out and put it on. Her, one of her friends at school a few weeks back was having a hard time. I'm not really sure what was going on for her, but she was pretty upset and I could see it impacting my daughter at drop-off. So I mentioned that to her and she, you know, she latched onto that and she put on her bubble And I started walking towards the door and she ran back over to me and she said, I'm putting on another one just to be sure. So she had her little double layer of bubbles. It's like creating, I mean, as adults, we can kind of process um, putting up an energetic shield around us, but it's hard to break that concept down to kids. But I think the bubble works really well. I've also heard people describe it as an eggshell you can put an eggshell around yourself. You can even put spikes on your eggshell if you need to really keep people away. Um, so those are a couple tools that I've used and I've heard other people talk about as well in terms of protecting your energy as a, a highly sensitive child. Processing information, they're probably, most of them are probably very visual processors to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then having that concept, I think the bubble is actually how I started too. Thinking back to like you know eight or ten, it was something. And when I just said spikes, I'm like I remember using that visual myself <laughs> at once. You know, nobody come at me. If you do, you're gonna pop. I'm like okay, like I don't want to deal with all your emotions on top of mine. Um, but then talking about the flip side of that. We talked about how sometimes they're too stimulated, they can boil over, they need that protection from being so empathic. But what if they're not stimulated enough? Because there's such high frequency processors of information and their, you know, environment. What happens when a highly sensitive child gets bored? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, that's not something that I've had a whole lot of issues with. 
Um, I know highly sensitive children do get bored, but I found often there, um, if you provide them with different opportunities, they're usually really creative and can figure out a way to entertain themselves pretty well. I would say if they're, if they're trying to think of the specifically, the specific word that I want to use. Um, what I've noticed is sometimes my daughter, for example, will tune things out if she's overstimulated. So it's still an issue of overstimulation. She, uh, early on her this past year, her teacher thought she was um, it, not AD, ADHD, but there's a specific word for it. Uh, not a uh, non-responsive, non-responsive ADHD, I think is what she called it. So basically that it wasn't that she was outwardly hyperactive. She was having trouble um, responding to other people and it made it seem like she had an attention issue. She just wasn't paying attention to other people. But really what was going on was she had started to embrace this coping mechanism of just ignoring everything around her so she could focus on what she wanted to do. And I realize this isn't exactly the question you were asking, so I'll come back around to that. But I just wanted to throw that out there as an alternate, an alternate option, an alternate um, perspective of how this might show up for a child. Because there, it's a collection that of tem sense, temperament it's traits. Like you're it's oh, you said, it's a collection yeah, the of... overstimulation could really be... I was going to say the overstimulation could really be just that they're not stimulated by their environment stimulation is actually internal mm -hmm. of just like you know they're making up their own stuff in their head they need to tune in they can't you know really interact with the outside world in the same way i think actually providing space for them to be bored can if you think about it in that way can be really valuable if you have a highly sensitive child because they are constantly taking in so much input that having space to um, disengage from all of that and just be for a little bit is really valuable, especially, especially if you have a kid who, you know, highly sensitive kids are really aware of other people's expectations. So they tend to be like model citizens at school if they're able to regulate their emotions. Most of them are, some of them aren't. But if they're holding it together at school, it takes a lot of energy and then they come home and they're just so done for the day that everything comes out. But if you provide them with a space at home that's calm and distraction-free where they can just kind of settle and regroup for 20 minutes or so after school, it can make a big difference. And if they're having trouble at school, if the teacher is able to provide a small corner where they can be away from the group and have a little bit of quiet and maybe read or just sit for a, f a few minutes when they need to regroup if they're feeling overstimulated, that can be 
really valuable too. So offering the space and then encouraging your child to utilize it and also starting to teach them tools that they can use when they need to decompress and get rid of all that excess stimuli. So different breathing techniques and then moving up into possibly age-appropriate meditations of some sort as they get older, that can be super helpful. Did I answer your question? <laughs> you did, yeah, because I think what happens is a lot of parents, and we already live in such a competitive society, that I think a lot of parents, the mindset is just constantly challenge your child at, at all times. And then, you know, people tend to not understand the creativity that can come out of boredom mm -hmm. if they would just let their kids be bored. But I also just, you know, was coming from the angle that like sometimes these kids are just in the habit of processing so much information that if suddenly there's nothing new and overwhelming to them too. And that made sense to me that you're saying like the internal chatter then kind of increases for them and now they have overstimulation inside of instead of outside and there's just a, a balance like it's a delicate balance to really maintain with these kids of giving them space giving them stimulus understanding how they process that stimulus and just you know moving forward from there i know we talked about kids who are really mistaken for not being highly sensitive sometimes because they're extroverted Mm -hmm. And yet they are still highly sensitive. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because I feel like that's the category I fall into. And that was a real conundrum for everyone around me to even be able to understand, like, wait, how could you possibly be somebody who needs so much quiet time and so much internal space and you're having sensory overload when you're also the one that's always throwing house party? Yeah. Something just super tolerance process that their kid can be both. Yes. Time. So the long running assumption was that um, sensitivity and introversion were pretty much the same. And in the past 20 years, maybe a little bit more than 20 years, it's kind of shifted with the work of Dr. Elaine Aaron. And she's the one who really called into into focus the concept of high, highly sensitive people and highly sensitive children. So high sensitivity, having a very sensitive nervous system that's tuned into more things than the other people around you is a trait that occurs in roughly 15 to 20% of the population, so about one in five. And it's a trait that's often paired with introversion and it's about 60% of highly sensitive people are introverted, which means the other 40% are actually extroverted. And when you boil it down to the actual population, it's about 6% of people are extroverted, highly sensitive people. So it's a much smaller segment of the population, and it is confusing because it does look like other things. Um, it can look like sensory processing disorder or ADHD, but there's a difference in the ability to focus when, um, when they really want to or when distractions are removed, right? 
So for a highly sensitive extrovert, it's interesting, they're much more prone to overstimulation because they're seeking out social experiences, but yet there's more noise, there's more input. And they're, so that's what they crave is those social interactions, but then they get overstimulated more easily. So they're more likely to have public meltdowns um, or, or shutdowns. It doesn't have to be a big emotional outburst. It can just be like retreating internally. Does that make sense? It totally does. And I think I'll, I'll probably share an experience here. It's so old, at least 10 or 12 years ago, but um, <clears throat> this used to happen to me a lot when I was in college or law school, just you know, I was very extroverted. I was the one coordinating everybody, you know, stuff. And I would have this funny conversation almost all the time with all my friends. They're like, why do you go to the bathroom so much? And I was like, how do I explain this to you that like, I'm, I'm being very extroverted. I'm totally in it. And then I'll have a crash internally mm -hmm. in that moment. And it's like, I'm overstimulated, but I can't explain this to you. So like, I'm going to go hide in the bathroom stall for like 10 minutes, do some breathing, you know, and just like get myself together again and then come right back out and be like the high energy person that you think you saw. <laughs> but it's like, I need five bathroom breaks in that, that three hour span to be that person because that's also who I am. But also it's like there's too much going on. Maybe there's too extroverted and social. I still need to internally, intrinsically keep track of my environment. Like yeah. who's coming, who's going, where where are the doors, where, you know, what is the layout of everything? Is there anyone nearby? I'm also needing to keep track of my bubble. Like has my bubble been punctured? Like what's going on? Like there's just a lot of variables at any given moment. Years later, I was able to probably explain this to a couple of my girlfriends that, like, it's not that I have a bladder problem. Like, <laughs> I really just, you know, needed a safe space to, like, decompress. And that's the only private space that you can get when you're out. Um, it's just, like, run away to the bathroom sometimes and just be like, okay, take some deep breaths. And, like, it's going to be great and it's going to be fun and you can still be that person. But <laughs> recognizing your crash moment when it happens and so that would be kind of bringing me to my next question that as a parent though let's say I mean up until they're like I don't know six or seven maybe they might not be able to communicate effectively that mm -hmm. they're about to experience that or sense it or like know that it's coming up because now like for myself I know like 15 minutes ahead of time how how do the parents notice that it's about that their kids about to hit that moment before the temper tantrum happens or before the meltdown or well that takes some practice and takes noticing your individual child's cues to be able to predict it um just by what they're doing but if you take some time to really reflect on even just the past week on when these situations have come up, you can start to notice patterns and you can start to kind of predict 
like what it is that pushes them over the edge um, and when they might need some time to decompress. And the story you were telling, you were in college, right? And that's really cool. Um, you had it down to where you could regroup in about five minutes, but the younger the child, the longer it's going to take. They don't have the same tools to be able to figure out what's going on and realize that they need to regroup. So they may need at least 20 minutes to get back on track. So um, noticing the patterns and starting to predict it is really helpful. You can give them that space. And I want to share a story about a child that was in my class in just a moment, but I also wanted to offer a few ideas for helping give your child that space when you're kind of out and about, because a lot of times that overstimulation happens when you're out. So <laughs> just carrying a, a pair of noise canceling headphones can be really helpful just to kind of block out some of the sound. Also, one of the things that's been nice for us is having a toddler carrier like that goes up to like instead of like a you know the the beckos and ergos and those things generally go up to about 40 pounds so we bought one that goes up to 60 that you can wear front wearing so she can get in the carrier if she needs to like tune out the rest of the world um and she's my daughter's four and she weighs 40 pounds right now so i guess we could keep using that for a while um if we needed to, but that's been helpful at the farmer's market or having a wagon, just a secure space that they can step into if you're in a crowded area. Um, if you have younger children, having a stroller with a uh, ride along attachment can be helpful so they can be right there with you. Like you're kind of, you're, you become their bubble. <laughs> does that make sense? It totally does. And I love the example you shared, um, especially, I, I kind of figured that out too with the patterns because I have them myself that like it's really normally just one or two to really just send your kid down, you know, into like just that temper tantrum place or that meltdown or like, you know, and one of the tricks that we use, and this is probably very specific to my son's trigger, his is one of his biggest ones is like he needs to do everything himself. Mm -hmm. like absolutely everything himself if it is like in a remote and some of this I think I enabled too because I was seeing it in him so like I had told you before like in our house all the lights are on hue lights the important areas so that he can have like a remote that's at his height so he can turn on the lights he can get on a stool he literally just walks around the house like he owns the house you know and yeah he's just kind of very independent so that just because I'm in a rush or I forgot to ask him how he wants it done or give him options like is just meltdown city but for us the quick fix is like I just undo it if it's possible or start over and I'm like you do it your way I'm so so sorry that like I took over you know and let and he'll you know stop the meltdown midway to like go do his thing his way yeah. So for us, that's just, again, like a very specific one. But I think noticing the patterns helps you come up with the, you know, solution as well. Like you're saying that for your daughter, you're using 
that pack where she can sit on. We use a duder. It's like in the back, um, mm-hmm. like a backpack. So he can actually sit on it when we're in a really crowded space and like cool. feel my husband. He'll like hold his ear. Hey, so like we've gone to like the zoo or whatever. Like he needs to physically like he'll hold onto his cheeks and his face and just be like grabbing on my husband's head. But it's like still he's just comforted by knowing that amongst the stimulus, like daddy's part of his bubble in that particular situation looking on trying to carry him around he's he's a little too heavy for me yeah Um, but that that that's useful need for independence is actually pretty common in highly sensitive kids and it often with parents that aren't aware of what's going on leads to a lot of power struggles and power seeking behavior which you've probably avoided to a large extent because you've been giving him that level of independence and so he he knows that he can get that and it's safe and um when it's not met he has issues but you are like when you you kind of course correct that's awesome and it's i think it's probably really helpful to him just hearing that he's able to stop the meltdown and regroup tells me that that it's really working for you guys because I think in that too, like I have handed most of the power to him. So he's able to recognize that if I take the power over and I'm like, this is not a negotiable negotiable situation, then like he actually takes it seriously because he's like, wow, she is gonna just melt out on me like right now. Like normally my mom doesn't react like this. It's the one out of 100 situation where I went too far, you know, in trying to take like he was the other day trying to tell me he's like I'm gonna buckle myself into the car seat I'm like this is not a negotiation you are not touching the car seat like this is not gonna happen because you it's a health like it's a health safety issue and I told him I'm like it's a health issue or it's a safety issue mm-hmm. not allowed not available can't do it mommy's doing it end of story and he was like oh okay like normally she'll let me he tried to push the envelope a little and he was like gave up because he's like well that this must be really like monumental that she's like ready to fight me on it you know yeah about the power and i've heard it it has been interesting related to if you have dogs that need lots of space to run you you put them in a small yard and they really struggle they 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 can't get all their energy out right but if you take away your fences completely, then you worry about them running into the street. So the, the, the key is to find where you put the fence to give them the space they need to feel free and to get their energy out, but to also keep them safe. So with these kids that are needing a high level of independence, you still have to have fences in place or boundaries around certain things, but you want to set them far enough out that they feel a healthy level of autonomy and independence. And then the power struggles that you face are minimized to like a very significant degree. They almost disappear, not completely, but it's much more manageable. Absolutely, because you're basically saying to your kid, I hear you. And I am listening. I'm going to try to, you know, pay attention. 
and they're just they're they could separate that. So you know, two questions I really wanted to ask you today, especially that um, lots of families out there have more than one kid, or they're in the process of planning that out. Um, you know, especially the mompreneur crowd where they're working only school hours, go all of that out along with their highly sensitive kid or the dadpreneurs who do the school hours. So for that group of people who, um, and I'm gonna ask this kind of as a two-part question, that has a highly sensitive kid already, and then they've already got all this other stuff on their plate with the business and everything else, Let's say they're having a second or third child, and maybe there's one or two highly sensitive kids already in the batch. Mm-hmm. What can they be doing well ahead of time to prepare the highly sensitive kids for the new arrival? And then let's say it already happened, so part two of this, what could you do in retrospect to kind of make the situation easier? Because they already messed things up. For them, so kind of that pre-planning phase, you know, and then the kind of maybe you didn't get to it or you didn't know to do it, and now you're dealing with the repercussions. How do you handle that? Yeah, I think adding a new sibling is a lot of highly sensitive kids struggle with transitions and adding a new sibling or any other big life change, like a move or starting a new school are some of the biggest transitions that a child can experience. So to prepare a highly sensitive child, just like you would prepare any child for a new sibling, you want to, you want to let them know what's coming up, right? The, you want to be pretty clear about things are going to be changing, we're going to have a baby in the house and let them know what to expect. Um, I think with highly sensitive kids, the key is you may have to start a little bit earlier and you may have to revisit it more often and be as authentic as possible. Give them as much information as possible because they're going to want a lot of information. You've got to keep it at their level, right? You don't want to tell them things that are going to scare them or really overwhelm them more, but as much as they're able to handle, be honest with them and then create a safe space for their emotions to come out. Because for most highly sensitive kids facing a big transition like this, it may take a couple weeks before they kind of re-acclimate to the new situation. So once the baby is born, um, given support and space for their emotions it's not like it's not going to be an easy transition they're still going to need time even if they're feeling supported so knowing that going into it and holding space for them to have their experience and to have negative emotions if negative emotions come up and talk them through it help them process those emotions that's going to help you stay connected with that older child and help them through the, the change. And then if you've missed that part. What about the opposite? Oh, sorry. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I, 
I was going to say, instead of introducing a new element into their environment, you've taken them out and about completely to a different environment. So you're traveling for a long period of time or something. And I accidentally, I cut you off before you answered part two. So I'll just add that in after. Okay. Well, if you're, if you're taking them out of their environment and traveling, you may need to plan more downtime or a slightly slower trip than you would otherwise. So, um, you know, as adults and we, when we go to new cities and we want to see everything, we tend to kind of stack our sightseeing. You may need to, even if your child is older, schedule kind of like a nap time that's not necessarily for napping, but just for regrouping because going from place to place to place can be really overwhelming, especially if you're leaving behind the security of your home and it's just a whole new environment. So just knowing that going in that your child may need extra downtime if you can plan for it that can be helpful if you can slow your trip down a little bit so like i know when i used to travel before i had kids i'd go for like a month at a time and we'd spend a, a night or two in one city and then move on to the next city and maybe you slow down just a little bit more and spend more time in one place does that make sense it does. So then I guess given both scenarios, let's say you had the baby and you didn't do that amount of prep that was needed or you planned the trip and now in retrospect, like you're realizing that the kid is reacting differently. So in both situations, you've created a stimulus in their environment where you know, what do you do to help avoid those temper tantrums, those meltdowns, those going so inside of themselves that they won't talk to anybody for, you know, hours at a time. Like what's the the balm on, you know, you do, pain? You do exactly what you were talking about on a smaller scale, right? So you said when you realize that you've kind of taken some power away from your son, you stop and you acknowledge what was going on and you give him a chance to do it himself and he's able to course correct. So you do that on a bigger scale and understand that it's probably going to take a few tries and a little more time. So if, you're, if you've introduced a new child and your child, older child hasn't, sorry, if you've, if you've welcomed a new child to your family, you've had a new baby and your older child hasn't really had that level of prep or that amount of time to process their emotions, find the time now and say and acknowledge their experience this has been really hard for you i want to be here with you so that you can work through what you're feeling i think you're feeling a lot of different things and if you um if you're able to put words to their emotions i think that's a good idea i i caution against saying you're feeling this and phrasing it more as like it seems like this is what you're going through so that it gives them a little bit of space to own it and correct you if you're wrong. Um, but helping them find the words for their emotions is really valuable. It helps build their emotional intelligence and it helps them feel validated and connected and understood. And, oh, I was going to add one more thing. <laughs> um, 
it'll come back to me in a minute, I'm sure. <laughs> so. So even with the big travel, it's just course correcting while you're already there and saying, hey, do you need downtime? Yeah. Or it seems cancel X plan. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, if you're able to. And if you're not able to provide the downtime, it's still really valuable to speak to your child's experience and acknowledge their emotions. That's the piece I was going to say is it's in addition to naming the emotions, it's really helpful to label what you see going on in their body, the physical side of it. So if, you know, like they're kind of tensing up or crunching their shoulders up or their faces turning red or they're having a hard time catching their breath, <laughs> like they're hyperventilating, any of those things that come up when they're in more in meltdown mode, acknowledging the physical side of it, because if you can, if they can learn to recognize the signs in their body and regulate what's going on in their body and connect it to the emotion, that's a really valuable skill as they get older. So they can start to see, oh man, my heart's beating faster. Something must be going on. They may have that physical sensation before they're really aware of the emotion that's coming up for them. That's really funny that you say that, and I was trying not to laugh, not at you, but like <laughs> no one can see the video of this, but you were doing this motion with your shoulders where you're crunching, and my son does that exact motion. Like he'll do <laughs> like pump his shoulders up like three, four times, right? Like some five, six minutes before he's right about to get really upset because it means that the stimulus has already started. Mm -hmm. And he's experiencing something that's making him uncomfortable. And so I started calling it out for him. I'm like, oh, you're doing your shoulder pump. You know, like, it looks like you're going to be upset soon. Can we start talking now about, like, what is it that's happening right now? What's making you so upset? Is it something that we can course correct? Or is it something that, sorry, man, you got to eat your broccoli. Like, that's just, I'm not going to negotiate with you on that kind of thing, you know? You're right, the physical symptom tends to come first. That yeah. reactionary body language that they're about to just get to that place that I can't do this anymore, but I don't know that I can't do it anymore because maybe I'm too young or nobody's actually helped me identify myself as highly sensitive, so they're just unaware. Yeah. But that brings me to another question. My experience of this is that highly sensitive kids have a very different relationship with time. And one of the things that tends to really stress them out is that, like, you need to get somewhere on time. I'm going to rush you through what you would normally do or your process of observing things and the pace that you're going at. And this really kind of, I think, would happen, especially in a situation where you're traveling or you're taking them out of the environment and you have to catch the train on time or a plane on time or something. So what are your tips for those parents who, like, you know, you're trying to cater to them, but maybe they're just slow pokes a little bit because yeah. there's a lot going on and you need to get somewhere. So what's, what's some language and or, you know, actions that those parents can take? I would say the, the first place that I, I'd like to start is um, – Keep in mind that 
when you're trying to get out the door, just as the most basic example, if you're trying to get out of the door in the morning, get out of the house, we tend to think of that as the transition, but there are all sorts of little micro transitions that need to happen. And I say micro transitions, but like change in state. So a change in state for your child that need to happen before you actually go out of the door. And what a lot of parents tend to do is to move through all of those micro transitions really quickly leading up to the transition out of the door. And if so, so we might like try to give our child time to play in the morning and say, okay, you have five minutes before we need to leave or before we need to get ready for school. And then you give them that five minutes. So then they're not only having to transition out of their play, then they have to get dressed and brush their hair and brush their teeth and put their shoes on and put their coat on and go out of the door. If you can um, stretch those transitions out and space them out throughout your morning a little bit more, it makes it easier for your child. Does that make sense? It totally does. I think I should probably have a good example I can provide as well for this. So we used to really struggle with that morning of the micro transitions of like, you need to get up, you need to get out of bed, you need to brush your teeth, we need to change your underwear, we need to, you know, like move on to putting on some lotion because we live in Chicago. It's a very dry and cold environment, you know. We do the same routine every day, and I was like, why is he not getting it? Why is this so hard for him to just accept the fact that it's going to be the same thing every day? And it came back to that power thing. So what I ended up doing was um, going on Canva and just getting pictures of, like, a toothbrush or, like, you know, clothes or whatever and just labeling them as, like, toothbrush clothes and they printed them out and made the little note cards for him and attached a magnet on the back and we have them around the house now they're in his room the bathroom like wherever where it's like the activities he's going to be doing in that space I tell him I'm like which order are we going to do it and can you arrange the cards for me so he feels some sense of control over and then he's actually willing to like move through the transitions himself because he's reminding himself and saying has to happen because they already said out loud that I'm going to do it. And so that really helped us kind of just rope it in time-wise. And again, like you said, giving them space, you know, we take an hour and 20 minutes every morning before we get out of the door for him to really dream time and needs to like, you know, do everything in the order. And I just tell him, I'm like, as long as everything happens, I don't care what order you do it in, I don't care which part of the house you do it in, whatever makes you flow, whatever's clicking with you today, fine, but it has to be done when you have to leave at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm like setting that as the only firm boundary for him. Um, most of the time will work because, you know, we've kind of set it up that way. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Those visual, having a visual schedule. Out there. Yeah. It's incredible. Day and night difference. Yeah. For him, especially. That's um, a really great example. So, and it's a good example of the, I, like, I wanted to clarify this point. We're not just 
catering to our children's needs in these situations, right? We're not just enabling them because there's, I think there's a lot of pushback from the outside or there can be if you're, you know, planning downtime for your child or you are carrying noise canceling headphones or um, a, a baby carrier when they're not a baby anymore. A lot of those things are seen as enabling and really I want to shift that mindset and make it clear that we're not enabling, we're providing space for them to process and we're teaching them the emotional regulation skills that they need to be able to then go out into the world and do it on their own. So our kids are going to encounter people who don't approach these things the way we do. Hopefully the intention is that when they do start to get into those situations, they have some tools in their toolkit and they have some self-awareness to know what they need to be able to manage those situations. That's such a big point, like just combating society and or your loved ones, people who misunderstand the situation. Like, what's your suggestion for parents? Like, what is the dialogue that they should be having or the boundary that they should be setting up front with people? Or, and how do you handle that criticism sometimes of, like you said, it looks like enabling from the outside. But what you're really doing is allowing your So how do you suggest parents handle that? That is a big topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the very first step is to be self-aware in those situations. So it, like most of us, when somebody starts to tell us like, we're enabling our child or we're damaging our child or whatever words they use, we go into a reactionary mode, even if it's not such negative language, even if they're saying, I think that they may need firmer boundaries around this, right? We get, as humans, we tend to get reactionary, we tend to get defensive. So having the self-awareness to notice that coming up and step back from that. And I like to use the same approach that I use with my kids. So um, trying to see the whole situation from that person's perspective and acknowledging their concern, what they're worried about, and then, sta then stating my concern and my rationale and explaining what, why we're doing things the way we're doing them. Because I do have a solid, rationale for why we're doing things. But if I'm feeling defensive, if I'm feeling criticized, I can't access my logical brain to explain that. So first I have to get out of that reaction and then I have to really connect with the person and let them know that I'm taking their concerns seriously and I understand where they're coming from and then explain this is the way we're doing it and why. And sometimes you don't have enough time to go through that whole explanation, right? I also like to try to be proactive about it. So if I know that there's a family member that has a concern, they've mentioned it in the past, rather than waiting until it comes up again and I'm feeling triggered and I need to like regulate and manage my own defensiveness, 
I try to engage in a conversation that's a problem-solving conversation. So I'll bring it up and say, hey, my daughter's having a hard time with this and we're trying to figure out a solution. This is what we're working on and this is why we're working on it. Does it work for you? Do you have any ideas um, that you'd like to contribute to this problem-solving process? That's a really good suggestion. I think, you know, just first I hear you saying acknowledge that person, make them feel like they're heard about, even though they are criticizing you, but make them feel heard. <laughs> and then that allows you to kind of just take a deep breath, get back into your friends who are doing things in a very specific way, have a reason, they have experience behind it that says, Doing it this way is easier in the long run for everyone in the family unit who's living in the same house versus doing it the way that the person is saying that they should be doing it. <clears throat> really just setting yourself up for success is the other thing I hear you saying with the environment. Like we had a period of time where we were just getting a lot of flack from everyone around. Why is your bedtime routine so intensive? Why does it start so early? Because there was a period of time where, like, my son needed a ton of wind down in order to even be able to go to sleep. Like you said, he's really alert. There's too much stimulus. Like, you had to take so much stuff out of his room mm -hmm. and, just, you know, the whole processing of everything. And so we just set ourselves up for some success on that. We were just like, everybody who we know now we've experienced, they have such a massive criticism and problem with the way that we're handling this we're only be around at that time of bedtime we're not doing afternoon evening plans with those people anymore because mm -hmm. we don't want to keep re-explaining ourselves because sometimes you fall in a pattern with someone where they're just going to keep criticizing you and you're going to keep explaining yourself and they're going to keep criticizing you and they're just not getting it because you're not doing it their way. And for some reason that offends them, even though it's not their child. Yeah. And <laughs> you brought up a good point. Sleep issues are really common with highly sensitive children because they tend to get so overstimulated. They have a harder time winding down. They may wake up in the middle. This has been happening with my daughter lately. And we, I think, got it back under control again. But she was waking up for two hours in the middle of the night, fully awake, wanting to talk not really upset about anything, just awake. Or, or if she's stressed out, she'll wake up and she'll be upset and stressed out and wanting to process it in the middle of the night. So that's really common. And sleep advice is not geared towards highly sensitive kids. So all, I mean, there are a few sleep experts who do speak to the needs of highly sensitive children but most of them don't take them into consideration. They're really just teaching kids to uh, internalize things and shut down and function without support, which if we want to raise well-adjusted, highly functioning, highly sensitive kids, they need the opposite of that. And that's such a valid point. And you know, as you were saying that we've experienced the same thing too, because if we have like a very stimulating day and then I just try to put him down right away for bedtime without giving him the space to process with us and alone, 
he needs both. Then in the middle of the night, I'll hear like, mommy, are you awake? I need to talk to you. And I'm like, it's 2 a.m. now at this time. And so like for us, the routine is like, if it's been like a really jam-packed day, we're totally aware that he needs somewhere between like 15 minutes of processing with us to reiterate everything that happened in his mind because he's so young still, that he might actually talk to himself for another 30 minutes while he's alone in his room before he can go to sleep. He needs to understand. And without that external processing, because he's a very verbal processor, <laughs> he can't calm down. And mm-hmm. if he can't calm down, he can't sleep, right? And, you know, we experience this too, because like you said, sleep, in general, in the school system, in, you know, just other people, how they process it, sleep training experts, it's not geared towards these kids. Well, he was just talking, 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 needing to process what happened that entire morning. And his teacher was like, he's disturbing all the kids. And I'm like, I'm giving you a really easy solution. Separate him from the group. Exactly. He, he can finish his thing. He will calm down. And then they can all sleep. The other 15 children in the room can go to sleep. And she resisted me finally, didn't she? was like, wow, it's a day and night difference. And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to say, duh. Like, I told you already that, like, he is not going to calm down. He'll go to sleep forcibly, very quiet, and wake up in the middle. So either way, he's going to do it his way because that's the only way that he can handle it. Yeah. That's funny because you kind of described some of the children that I've had in preschool classes before. And we, we did, we had two nap rooms so that the kids that were like more verbal processors or the kids that weren't going a nap, period, were in a different room from the kids that needed a quiet space to actually go to sleep. So um, can I come back to the little story I was going to tell about one of my students? Do we have of course. Yeah. I okay. Totally do. So I, I wanted to tell this story because I think it's really helpful for, for parents who may be really struggling um, and hearing these suggestions and thinking that they just won't work for their child because there's, they're too intense. There's too much going on. So I had a child in my class um, who there was something more than high than highly sensitive or sensory processing sensitivity is the official term, but it's not a diagnosis. I want to be clear on that too. Being highly sensitive is a normal temperament trait. It's not something that needs to be fixed or treated or it's not something wrong, right? So this child was more than just highly sensitive and he would every day at lunch start throwing things and screaming at the top of his lungs like the whole school could have heard him and it was very disruptive and we couldn't get him to stop doing that he'd also do it in our morning meetings he would he would scream throw things and we were working on it and trying to find a solution we were giving him tools to help him sit still longer like exercise bands around the legs of his chair Um, i ended up talking to uh, a woman who specializes in special uh, special education, I guess. Um, she was a consultant for a different school. And I told her what was going on. And she said, well, can he sit there for any length of time before this starts happening? Or is it immediate? 
And I said, well, he does fine for a little while. And she said, okay, what you need to do is start timing him for a week, set a timer at the beginning of lunch and track how long it takes before he starts screaming. Track how long it takes before he starts throwing things. So really the pattern that we noticed as we were timing was it would start, he would grab something from his lunch and kind of toss it across the table. And that was the sign that he was getting overstimulated and he needed to be done. So we start the timer at the beginning of lunch and then the first time he started to throw something, we'd end it. And we found that our lunch was about 30 minutes long. He could make it about 15 minutes before he'd start spiraling into screaming. So what we started doing was setting the timer for 15 minutes. And then at 15 minutes, we'd ask him to go find something else to do that was quiet, usually read a book. If he needed a teacher with him, a teacher would go sit with him and read a book. And it made it so that he could be successful at the lunch table and the other kids didn't have to endure that level of screaming. And the same thing worked for our morning meetings. We would just allow him to sit until he hit his limit and then we'd give him the space. We had a space set up for him to go to so he could just go into his space and sit there for the rest of our meeting and still be in the room kind of connected to the class but not so stimulated. And it, it helped a lot. <laughs> it was still really challenging but there are things that you can pick up on if you really start paying attention and you get really granular and start noticing, you know, how long does it take before this happens? Then you can step in and help them course correct for themselves. Because once they get into that mode where they're just screaming at the top of their lungs, there's no course correcting. They're too far gone. They, they aren't able to access anything rational. Like any normal human being. Right. Because like, if you're already pissed off, <laughs> then no one's going to calm you down until you do it yourself. But that brings up a great question, like, because this is happening in a school setting. So let's say there's a parent who's listening to this who is like, okay, I think I've already sensed that my child might be highly sensitive, or <clears throat> maybe my child is not necessarily labeled highly sensitive, but they have some sort of sensory issue that is sort of self-diagnosed at the school mm -hmm. and have that conversation with the teachers and the administration and say, listen, I don't want you to run and jump and just label my kid ADHD off the top of, you know, the bat. But my child has some needs that successful if you would address them at the school setting because we do it at home or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, what do you advise for those parents? Because they feel like, I'm just kind of channeling this, but like I feel like a lot of them will just be hearing the criticism that why don't you homeschool or just take your child out of the environment so they don't impact everybody else? Um, or, you know, maybe send them to a special needs school or something. But maybe what they really just need is what you're saying is so simple, like a timer. Mm -hmm. and then move on with the day. Like, how do you as a parent have that conversation with the school system? I think that something needs to change between the way, I mean, it's in the way that parents and teachers relate to each other. So I noticed this as a teacher. Um, 
and I'm noticing it as a parent, there's not as much communication between home and school as there should be. And there's not, especially when I was growing up, there it wasn't, I didn't feel like my teachers and my parents were on a team. I felt like my parents were on my team. And if I needed help figuring something out with my teachers, my parents would step in and try to help me. But really, teachers and parents need to be a team. So as a parent, really learning how to advocate for your child and take initiative to step in and say, hey, these are some needs that my child has. If you find a way to address them, if you create a cozy corner in your classroom where they can have a little bit of downtime to decompress, or if you set a timer and keep them at the table for 15 minutes during lunch instead of 30 minutes, you are going to have an easier time in the classroom. I have lots of tools that I can share with you because I know that these things can be challenging, but I want, I want to work with you to make your classroom run smoother, to make your school year more successful, and to help my child have an enjoyable classroom experience too. So if it's coming in as an advocate for the teacher in that conversation versus just the advocate of your child, what you're kind of saying is that I know my child is part of this environment. I have a solution already that works that could really make everything better for everyone because my child's part of this environment and leaving them hopefully a little more open to it because it's not about something the teacher's doing wrong. It's just something that you know how to contribute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And being proactive about it, too, rather than waiting for these issues to arise at school, I think is really helpful. Because once the issues start arising at school, then the teachers start formulating theories and um, coming up with ideas and trying to figure out what's going on, too. And if you're not communicating about that, then you both have your own ideas about what's going on. And maybe you're even having the same ideas, but different solutions. Whereas if you can just come together at the beginning and be really clear about it, I think it makes a big, big difference. So that's something that I try to work with parents on doing is being a little bit more proactive and also being receptive to what the teachers have to say because they may notice things that you haven't noticed yet. Um, I know the child that I was just talking about, I don't think his mother had any sense of what his, um, what his time limit was, what his threshold was for being able to sit comfortably as part of a group. So figuring that out, that's useful information for her to have. So if you have this open dialogue where you're sharing strategies, it makes a big difference for families, for schools. It's really important and it doesn't happen enough. I don't think it does at all. And, you know, as you say that, it really brings up, let's say fast forward several years, instead of talking about the young crowd, talking about maybe that end of high school, about to make a huge decision in their life of like where to go to college, which, per, you know, profession to start pursuing, or what experiences to have, do you take a gap year, whatever. If that dialogue existed between parents and teachers, I mean, think about the impact that could have on a child's life because yeah. they're literally deciding a good chunk of their life what's going to happen. So 
do you have suggestions maybe for parents with older kids who maybe they've never labeled them as highly sensitive, they're coming to the understanding now that they were, or they already are, you know, understanding that they're highly sensitive. How do you as a parent guide your child in the direction of picking a college environment or a internship or whatever, or a profession that suits their personality in this case? Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, if you're just starting to suspect that you have a highly sensitive child who is an older highly sensitive child, I would bring them in on the conversation and say, hey, I'm noticing these things about you. I've noticed them for a long time, but I'm realizing that this is something that's true of one in five people. And these are some strategies that could be really useful to you. And these are some things that are important to know about yourself. Like maybe you want to um, consider how stimulating your career choice is going to be. Like if you're a highly sensitive person and you're planning to go into, I don't, well, I guess if you're extroverted, you might <laughs> plan to go into um, TV journalism or something like that. Uh, where it's just a constant influx of input it, that might appeal to the extroverted side of you, but it might be really overwhelming. So it's important to keep in mind what your needs are and uh, make plans to get your needs met. So as kids get older, they, they are open to having those conversations. They should be able to get on board and you can help them. Like you could even give them a copy of The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron and read it together. It's really insightful and really helpful for understanding yourself as a highly sensitive person. And that's where I would start with an older child in terms of helping them choose a suitable career or a suitable college. It's just helping them understand what their needs really are. And then kind of just tandem to that, um, that's kind of also the phase where, you know, younger people are starting to, if they want to, older, consider the possibility of marriage and all of that other stuff. And something where you're really having to function as a unit with another person who now needs to actually have a high grasp of what you are experiencing. So we're now adults and they are, or isn't, you know, complementary to that, they're walking into an entrepreneurship opportunity where the stimulus can just be intense. Like, how can you equip people to express about themselves that like, hey, I have these needs. This is how I meet my own needs. You might not necessarily have to do anything for me, but you need to be aware of maybe not criticizing me or giving me the space when I'm doing it. What's some, I don't know, language or ways that that someone can communicate that? Well, let's see. We're getting a little bit out of my immediate wheelhouse, so I'm going to try to move along with you on this. But um, 
I, I really think the first step, so, so many highly sensitive people don't realize that they are highly sensitive. They've just kind of internalized it as something's wrong with me. I'm like, I, I overreact to things or I am uncomfortable in these situations. I'm shy. There's just something wrong. And so I think the first step is reframing your own thinking about those qualities. So there's actually nothing wrong with highly sensitive people. We just process things a little bit differently. The second step that I've been taking is to recognize uh, other people's, not just other people's temperaments, but also other people's personalities. And there's kind of a tendency for, and I've seen this written, I think it may have even been in the highly sensitive person, but there's a tendency for narcissistic people to be drawn to highly sensitive people because highly sensitive people are so turned into, tuned into other people's emotions and needs and that's what narcissists kind of feed off of. So there's a tendency to build relationships that are really unhealthy because um, one person is a narcissist and one person is highly sensitive and then it, it oftentimes becomes emotionally abusive. So just being aware of that dynamic too and learning to set really strong boundaries is, is important. <laughs> and that's, that's a huge, huge thing, being able to set boundaries for yourself and for your um, emotional needs and for your recovery time. A lot of us, especially I think as entrepreneurs, are, struggle to set boundaries around our um, internal world and our work world right so like we intermingle them and it just work kind of takes over and it becomes a lot harder to um, stand up for ourselves and make sure that we're getting what we need yeah they can definitely bleed together where it's like i'll find myself in it's like i'm working school hours but if there's that moment where my son's just playing by himself, like it is, it takes a lot of self-control for me to not take that 10 minutes and like get back on my phone and shoot out a bunch of emails. Yeah. It's right back to mom mode and, you know, any given opportunity, it's like slightly addictive to be, you know, not necessarily always productive, but in touch with your business, especially if you're passionate about it. Because yeah. it's like that's the thing that's fueling your soul and fueling, you know. So I think those are great suggestions of being so aware of yourself, having the boundaries, and you know, and being and really emotionally aware, developing the self discipline to do things like leave your phone, leave your work aside, even if your child is playing on their own for. 10 minutes or so. I, I, that's something that I'm working on myself <laughs> is when my daughter's playing independently, it's happening more and more. My, I, I almost don't know what to do with myself. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just check on my business stuff on my phone. And that's not actually helpful for me. It would be more helpful for me to be comfortable sitting with that space 
and or find a way to you know do some writing or do some like a quick meditation something that really serves me instead of anytime I have downtime anytime that I'm not needed just flipping right back into business mode that's what I tend to do when I'm really working on that <laughs> yeah I have a challenge with that too you know one of the things that we've both done because both my husband and I are in, in our own businesses is we created a charging drawer in the kitchen you know and then also one in the bedroom and we're just like especially the kitchen one is like, put the phone away, plug it in, mm-hmm. you know, and getting really in tune with prioritizing. What is that five minutes that our son is just really occupied with himself supposed to do for us or me individually? Just what is that one thing that would shift the needle a lot to do to promote, you know, something that's going on. It's really just that taking a deep breath, and as a highly sensitive person myself, just tuning in for a second and saying, am I so immersed in my entrepreneurship and my motherhood that I'm ignoring my own signals? Am I just about to crash soon? Yeah. Because, like, I'm just getting, you know, tuned in with all of that. It really does help to take a beat. And that, that brings around a really good point from a coaching perspective as – a highly sensitive entrepreneur, it's much more important to take ownership of your own needs and to be sure that you're meeting your own needs than it is to tell other people about your own needs. Because then that's just, that's putting responsibility on them when you might not be even taking responsibility for your needs yourself. So you've got to handle it on your end first. That's a really good point. Yeah, you know, that's a very, very good point because it's like for me, um, I will schedule some of my own mental car type of activities for me, for myself. And then initially I felt hesitation around that, explaining that to my husband that I'm using, you know, daycare work hours to do something that doesn't appear like work on the outside. And yet, it's so important, though, that I be in touch with that, because without that thing, like, once a week or once a month or whatever, like, I'm running on empty. I have nothing to give anybody. I'm not even handling myself, let alone handling anybody else at that point. So really, to me, I started viewing those activities as work, because it was like, this is, you know, for lack of better terminology, the make and model of my car requires this much gasoline in order to actually operate. And I'm going to accept that instead of just beating myself up and treat it as something that is part of my creative process, which is just nurturing the fact that when I'm really in tune as a highly sensitive person, I can achieve things that aren't easy very quickly. And so yeah, and when you're kind of part and parcel of being able to communicate that. When you're feeling energized and resourced, you've been taking care of yourself, then there's you bring all of that back to your work and you're so much more efficient and product not just productive but creative and effective in your work than you would be if you were just working all the time. Absolutely. So 
um, on that note, as we kind of start to wrap up, uh, what can you share with our audience? Because again, you're coaching these parents, your private practice is to coach parents through the experience of having a highly sensitive child. What else would you want to leave the audience with as a tip or suggestion of just, you know, how to handle the coaching process or how to handle the process of having a child like that? Yeah, I, the biggest tip, and this is something that I've been following up on myself recently, is if you are feeling overburdened, if you're feeling stressed by your role as a parent and you're facing certain behaviors or challenging challenges, for me it's been sleep lately and also um, making sure that my daughter's teacher is on the same page and really like understanding what's like she really wants to be and she's having a hard time so like helping manage that helping build that relation family and school like home to school relationship has been a challenge for me so my suggestion is if you are feeling stretched thin to get help get support because none of us are perfect and there are people out there sometimes having somebody bring a fresh set of eyes or ears to your situation can really zero in on what the core issue is and help bring that to light and make the rest of your life just fit together so much easier. So I did, I had a sleep consultation recently and it echoed a lot of the things that I'd already thought of, but it also brought up the idea that maybe my daughter has restless leg syndrome, which could be caused by an iron deficiency. So we rebooted her diet. We readjusted her bedtime. And we also have in mind, if none of this works, she might have sleep apnea because she does snore. And so maybe we need to take her to an ENT and have them take a look at her tonsils and her adenoids. So having somebody else's perspective, even though I already had this body of knowledge, made a big difference <laughs> and I just want to throw that out there for you all that none of us are perfect asking for help is okay and can actually be really empowering and helpful and sometimes you're just too close to the forest to see the trees right so exactly having a coach it doesn't make you a bad mom or dad to need that extra perspective from someone outside of your family to say, hey, here's a creative solution to what you're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. And so many parenting books are helpful, but they're also kind of one size fits all. And it may be a size that doesn't actually fit with highly sensitive kids. So, that's another thing to consider that actually talking to somebody and having them consider your own situation can be a, a game changer. Or even your brand of highly sensitive. Yeah, like even, even your brand of highly sensitive child, because you could have two and they could be totally different still, right? True. I'm sure you've experienced that. But True. There's, so that's, I really appreciate your sharing so much insight because I'm sure there's so many kids 
who are struggling and would love the help, and then the parents who would love to help their kids but don't even know better yet yeah. to do so. And that's so wonderful that you are able to guide them. But we're going to take a little detour because I want to ask my favorite question. Okay. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Ooh. Um, gosh, my... <laughs> My, I really, well, I really like chocolate in general. I think my long running favorite ice cream flavor was Americone Dream from Ben and Jerry's, but I don't do dairy or gluten anymore. So now it's like um, local ice cream shops that make coconut based ice cream. Whatever they've got going at the time is usually pretty amazing. Some places make like gluten free thin mint ice cream with a coconut base, and it's so good. <laughs> That sounds amazing. Actually, I I understand that though because I was like a Ben and Jerry's fish food person yeah. like, all the time. I like fish food too. Recreating company. You know, now that we've discussed all of the kind of implications of having a highly sensitive child, and people know that you're available for coaching if they're looking for it, where can they find you? How do they book an appointment with you? Yeah, so my website is partneredpath.com. My business is called Partnered Path Parenting. The website is just Partnered Path. You can also find me on Facebook or Instagram. You can, at Partnered Path Parenting, both of those places. You can message me directly. And I also have a scheduling software set up on my website where you can schedule a free hour-long consultation just to get to know each other and see if we'd be a good fit for working together. That is amazing. I hope the people who need it do reach out. And thank you so much, Julia, for, you know, talking today. It has been really insightful for the audience as well. Because, Thanks. you know, this is one of those things that can take you so far away from your entrepreneurial journey or even from the enjoyment of being a parent if you don't get in tune and learn how to handle it. So absolutely. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I want to say a big thank you for listening in. Without your support, there wouldn't be a podcast. If you've gained insight or inspiration from this podcast, please subscribe for regular updates and please share this podcast with someone you know who will benefit. Do you have a story to share about your own soulpreneur lifestyle that you've set up? Have a life or business problem you'd love a system for or want to be an anonymous caller for one of our live segments? Then go to your Anchor app or the Anchor website, find this show, and click on Message and record your story or question. You can also find the show notes on our website at flowation.com backslash T-S-L-P. That's F-L-O-W-A-T-I-O-N dot com backslash T-S-L-P. And subscribe to the T-S-L-P Insider to get a look behind the scenes of what it takes to bring this podcast to life. And 
get some exclusive offers that are only available to our email subscribers. Also, don't forget to follow at Flowation on Instagram to get updates about this podcast. Mm-hmm.